Okay, if you have your Bibles, we're going to continue our study in the gospel according to Mark. Uh, I was at the uh, staff part of the retreat, and I noticed that Nikki Pruitt had this little book. Now, for you guys, mine is going to be black because it's a guy thing. And hers was purple, not a guy thing. Sorry for the stereotyping, but that's just how I felt at the time. Anyway, I noticed that she had this little book, and I thought, what is that? And it's the entire book of Mark on one side, and on the other side is room to journal. And so I just wanted to encourage you, they're only three bucks. Um, Somebody in the church can figure out how to get it to you if you want it and where to go. I got mine off of Amazon. Um, But I started uh, journaling in here, and so I'm going to try this morning to preach from this little book, but I have my training wheels with me in case I uh, don't make it on my iPad, and then one day maybe we can get rid of the iPad. Part of allowing me to do that is the ability to use my glasses, because I never could do that uh, with my contacts. I'd be up here with, uh, what is that? Okay, Just as a reminder of where we are in Mark, Mark's gospel is written at a time when all of the eyewitnesses to Jesus' teaching and work were dying off. And John Mark, who's the author of this book that wrote it down, got almost all of his information from Peter. He started hanging out with Peter toward the end of Peter's life. So we're talking about the late 50s, early 60s, 30 years after Jesus died and rose again. And already at this time, myths and legends were rising up in the Christian and outside of the Christian community about Jesus. And so this was an opportunity to get down on paper before the eyewitness, at least Peter, dies about the real Jesus. What Jesus really said and what Jesus really did. Nothing that is recorded in the book of Mark that Peter wasn't present for. There are a lot of other things that Jesus said and did that Peter wasn't present for that are in the other Gospels, but in this Gospel, Peter's present for all of what we read about Jesus' teaching and Jesus' miracles, okay? And this particular text is about a healing that Jesus did with someone who had been paralyzed and four of his friends bring him uh, to Jesus, And it's going to answer two fundamental questions that every human being on the face of the planet asks, particularly when things don't go well. Something that we've done that we're ashamed of, something that we've done that has hurt somebody, we want to know, I want to know, can I be forgiven? Is there a way to get forgiveness? And then secondly... Who can forgive? Can I be forgiven and who can forgive? And this text is going to answer both of those questions through this healing of this paralytic man. All right? So let me uh, read the text to us all. It begins in verse 1 on chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. 
And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were thus questioning within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and take your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and he went out before them so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. May God help us to understand this is most precious word. The paralytic has come to Jesus Jesus has uh, gone home. We have no idea whose home. Many uh, perceive that it's Jesus' own home because his family has moved uh, to this region. But probably uh, uh, he's probably in Peter's mother's home. Uh, He's in this town that he's now calling home. He's in probably Peter's mother's home. And a crowd who has already heard Jesus' teaching in other places and heard that he has healed people, have begun to crowd around this house. Many have come into this house. It probably uh, only has one room. If this truly is Peter's uh, 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 mother's house, it's probably not very big uh, because uh, uh, Peter comes from a family of fishermen. They didn't have a lot of money. Most homes in that day, unless you were extremely wealthy, uh, was a one-room house large enough to, to have an area for cooking and an area for eating and, eat, and an area for lounging and an area uh, for sleeping, but it's still a one-room house, and it's packed. Everybody is there, huge crowds, and this paralytic and his friends have also heard about Jesus, specifically that he heals people. And so his friends uh, pick up his bed with him on it, And carry him because he can't get there himself in order that he might get what? Healed. And because they get there and they find out that they can't get in, they they begin to do some alternative arrangements to get him near Jesus. Now understand that that in verse 1, he's... Jesus is in this home. There in verse 2, there's this incredible crowd, no room. Where are the religious leaders? Well, if it's standing room only in the, in the house, they're sitting and, and talking as the privileged group while everybody else is standing and listening. Now, I don't want you to miss that contrast. We kind of just kind of skim over that in, in the, the scriptures. And I don't want us to skim over that because... I think it stands out that 
Everybody's there because they want to hear what Jesus has to say and they want to see what Jesus is going to do. And so do the religious leaders. But because they're there to sit in judgment, they're sitting. And they're murmuring. And they're talking. So I think that's going to be important in just a moment. And so here's a paralyzed man and his four friends in verse 4. And they're, they're carrying him. They can't get in. And because they can't get in, they say, okay, let's go to the roof. I don't know why they thought that was a great idea. But can you imagine... Four friends are carrying this guy on his bed, and so they carry him up on top of the roof, they lay the bed on the roof, and then they begin digging. Now think of it this way. Every house in the ancient world was probably made out of three things, wood, mud, and grass. And because of that, they want to get this paralyzed man in front of Jesus, and so they begin digging. And they began digging into first the grass, then the mud, and then the wood. Where do you think all of that grass and mud and wood is going? Jesus is right below that. And so it's fallen down. Imagine the love that these men must have had for their friend who is paralyzed. They first carried him all the way from his house to, to wherever Jesus was staying. They get there and they can't get in because of the crowd in the door. And so they love him enough to risk life and limb to carry him to the roof. They, they risk ruining someone's house by digging a hole in it. They risk the shame because... While the religious leaders are sitting there and and the room is packed with people and Jesus is up teaching, dirt is falling down and then grass and then wood. And, And you can imagine they're risking their own reputations and all the booze that they could probably hear. It's probably like what we felt like when you found out there were no donuts over there. All the disappointment. Imagine the love and determination that they must have had to get their friend before Jesus. Don't you wish we had that kind of determination? To take advantage of the opportunities that God gives us. The courage and the love to get our friends before Jesus particularly the ones who don't know him in order to be truly healed. Imagine that. Well, Jesus reacts, doesn't he? He sees them. I mean, I don't know how you can. It's falling down on his head and they're literally lowering him on his head on the stretcher because it says that they lowered him on his bed. And so in verses 11 and 12, we read this. I say to you, this is Jesus to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And then verse 12 tells us it worked because he rose and immediately picked up his bed and he went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus heals him. But I want you to know this. Jesus wants to do more 
than deal with our suffering. Suffering's important. Who wants the pain? But sometimes we think that's our biggest problem. If we could just get the pain to stop. When Jesus wants to go deeper than the pain. Deeper than the suffering. And so he's going to do that with this man. He's going to move from what this man thinks his problem is to what his real problem is. And so Jesus is going to have to go deeper. And we begin to see that immediately back up in verse 5. This is before he heals him of a suffering. He says, and when Jesus saw their faith, and we don't know whose faith it is. It could be the four guys. It could be all five of them, or it could be just the paralytic. We don't know. And we're not quite sure what they have faith in. That is, I don't think yet they have faith in Jesus as the future Savior that's going to hang on a cross. I, I don't think they have enough information yet to draw the faith to that. What they probably have faith only in is that Jesus has the ability to heal him. They, they may not yet believe he'll do it, but they believe he can do it. And so when Jesus sees that faith is being acted on, that their determination and their love for their friend, how could he not heal this guy? I mean, at that point, he's going to get an insurrection from the people standing there. These people have gone through tons of stuff to get this man before Jesus. And he sees that. And our Savior has incredible love and passion in in verse 5. And he says, instead of take up your bed, because he wants him to have more than an empty bed. He also wants him to have a clean heart. He says to him, your sins, my son, are forgiven. Wow. That's not what I thought I was going to get when I got lowered on this bed, but okay. Does that, is that the formula that I can now get off the bed? You see, Jesus recognizes something about the first century that we in the 21st century may not be aware of because we don't do it in the 21st century. We do not attach in the 21st century suffering to sin like they did in the first century. In the first century, if somebody was suffering, if somebody had a disease, if somebody was a leper, if somebody had an accident and lost a limb, if somebody was a paralytic, they assumed you did something wrong and God is punishing you. You see, they, had, they didn't just attach that we live in a fallen world and everything's broken and you end up broken too and therefore that's why you're like you are, like the way we understand it today. But in the first century, they assumed if there was something wrong with you, it's because you did something really bad. Or at least your parents did. Because remember the blind guy? You know, where his disciples come up to him and they ask him whose fault it is that this man is blind? Is it his fault because he, he sinned? Or is it his parents' fault, his parents' sin? You see, that's the way they thought in the first century. And so this paralytic, they're viewing him as a sinner who has caused this to happen to himself, or, or at least his parents did. That is, sin is the result of particular suffering, is the, the result of particular sins. When the Bible teaches that your suffering is not the result of particular sins necessarily or ordinarily, it does happen. Somebody 
who uh, rapes a woman, that's a sin that has a particular consequence to it. But in general, our suffering in this world is the result of sin in general. And so here's Jesus, and he's going to tie this together. Rather than saying simply you're, get up out of your bed and walk, which deals with the suffering, Jesus wants to go deeper than that. And so he puts himself out there and says, my son, your sins are forgiven. Whatever everybody in this room thinks about your paralysis and what caused your paralysis, you're forgiven. You cannot imagine... How affirming it is for Jesus to say that in front of the first century witness. Because they believe he's a bad person because simply he can't walk. Now, this guy does have a sin that I want to mention because it's our sin. The deepest sin that this man has is thinking that his suffering, the fact that he is paralyzed, is his deepest and most profound need before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Somehow, we think that the worst thing in our lives is our lack of finances, lack of retirement plan, relationships that are broken. And these are important things, But understand, that's not our greatest problem. Our greatest problem is with Jesus. And that is, is that we are trying to live a life without a king. We're trying to live our life without our king. So Jesus Jesus says, you think your problem is your pain? Your problem is with me. And so I forgive you. That's the deeper healing that he wants to bring to this man. Whether he ever brings the suffering to an end in this life doesn't matter in comparison. I know we want our pain to end, but God is more concerned with your heart than he is with your body. Your body is important to God. He made it. But it is less of a concern than where our heart is before him. But the truth is, this man, this paralytic, needs a deeper healing than forgiveness. Because this man, as soon as he gets up out of his bed and walks out of the place, he's going to continue to sin. You see, even though Jesus forgave him of his sins, he's still going to sin and he's still going to need more forgiveness. But not only that, just because he was healed does not prevent him from the worst disease known to man called death. This man's going to die. And though Jesus forgave him of his sins, he hasn't yet freed him from the tormentor of death. And so we need a deeper healing than even forgiveness for our sins. And that is a once-for-all freedom from the thing that has plagued the human race since the fall, sin and death. Our problem is not that we sin. 
at least not our deepest problem. Our deepest problem is that we are sinners and that's why we sin. And unless that is dealt with, then all of the forgiveness will need more forgiveness. And all the healing, all that will do is set us up for the need for the ultimate healing when we die. It's called a resurrection. And so the deepest healing here, you you have to get it. He's implying it when the religious leaders come at him. In verses 6 and 7, go back to 6 and 7, where it says this. He says, now some of the scribes, don't think of the scribes as just writers. They started that way. But then they became the interpreters of what they wrote. And then they became the teachers of what they wrote. So these are the religious leaders, not just some guys out there with a good pen. We're, we're sitting there, they're questioning, they're, they're, they're talking to each other. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's their question. And, and, and there's lots of reasons why I think these guys are struggling with Jesus. They could be struggling with Jesus because they have a very narrow theology and Jesus doesn't fit it. What do you mean that there's a God in heaven and then there's a God in front of me? How can that be? They don't have a broad enough theology that takes in the Trinity. They don't have a broad enough theology about our ultimate needs. They don't have a broad enough theology that the king that they've been looking for is not coming as a divine warrior. He's coming as a divine king who dies. He comes in weakness, not in strength. And that throws them for a loop. And I I think there's one other reason. And I think it's because they're just jealous. He's got the crowds. When was the last time they had standing room only for teaching? Probably not anytime soon. And so they too are jealous of Jesus and his teaching. And when was the last time they did a miracle? Probably not recent. And so... Jesus turns to them and he he knows their question in verse 8. He restates it. I understand what your question is. But in verse 9, he puts it this way. Which is easier, to heal somebody or to forgive them of their sins? And then Jesus... Now, first of all, we would say in the 21st century, it's harder to heal somebody than it is to forgive sins because we throw forgiveness around without any weight to it because we don't understand sin and the nature of sin but more importantly outside of hospitals we don't really see a lot of miracles and so we think healing somebody that's seen the doctor but the doctor says you've got terminal cancer and there's really nothing we can do more we can do for you we don't really tend to think of of miracles coming in where doctors cannot go and so we would answer that question well of course it's harder to to heal somebody than it is to forgive sins but in the first century they the answer to that question is it is more difficult to forgive sins than it is they had plenty of healers plenty of people doing miracles other than jesus The reason they say that it is harder, probably harder, to forgive sins is because only God can forgive sins. 
because all sin is against God. That's why David said, against you and you only have I sinned in Psalm 51. He's not saying that we don't sin against each other, but when he talks about true forgiveness, the true payment for sins, for the wages of sin is death, that only can come from God. That's what he means. That's the deepest healing for us. And so what Jesus is saying here is, I am the divine. I'm Yahweh. You've been looking for Yahweh and he keeps showing up in the temple and different places and you put down Ebenezer's to mark with him. I'm here. I'm Emmanuel. I'm with you. I was the word. I was with God. I am God. No wonder they begin to have opposition to him. And in that opposition, where is that going to end for him? But across that moment that he chooses to heal this paralytic at a deeper level than his suffering. At that moment that he chooses to do that, the shadow of the cross now is across his face until he hangs on that cross. That moment he decided, I see their faith. I'm going to give him a bigger healing, a deeper healing, a more profound healing than simply to get him out of that bed. I'm going to give him a clean heart. That caused him to be a marked man that will end in a cross that will do the very deep healing we need. It is because Jesus goes on the cross that our nature changes from sinner to saint. Not because we're acting better, because that never made us a sinner. It was because we were a sinner made us sin and now we have the ability to obey because he changed our nature at the cross but not only that it is because he died and rose again we will too death will have no sting the grave will have no victory over you but in order to do that In order to do that work in you, this deep, deeper, deepest work, you're going to have to lay flat and let him do that because you can't do this yourself. I love, my favorite Chronicle of Narnia is the book where it's called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in the book is this little boy that is so much like us. His name's Eustace. And he wants to be more than he is. And so he goes off into this cave and he he lays down because he's tired on a rock. And that rock is really a dragon and he doesn't know it. And the boy is converted or at least he he becomes on the outside what he hates and fears the most, which is the dragon. And so he begins to want to cease to be the dragon. And so he's trying to peel off these layers and he can't do it. And so he's depressed and dejected. And here comes Aslan. And in the Narnia tales, he's the Christ figure. And he comes before him and he says, you want to get rid of that? You want to, you want to be all that I want you to be? You want to be a boy again? Well, then you're going to have to undress and wash. And in the Narnia tales, the word undress is, means simply to peel off. And so here is Eustace, he says, I tried before, I'll try again. And he tries and he tries and he just never can get deep enough to get the skin off of him, the dragon skin. And so he, he gives up and, and Aslan says, well then, 
you can't do it. I have to do it for you. I have to undress you. And I love this. I gave it to you as a, a quote in your, in your worship guide. I think it's uh, so good. When, when it, uh, Eustace says, then the line, he's talking about Aslan, said to me, you will have to let me undress you. I, Eustace, was afraid to, of his claws. I can, now, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. Have you ever gotten to that point? So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I have ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know... If you've ever picked the scab of a sore place, it hurts. Oh, but it is such fun to see it coming away. That's what God wants to do for us. He wants to go deeper than we want him to go. But that's the only place we will truly have a healing. Listen, the great fear of a pastor is that every Sunday we're going to come in here, we're going to sing our songs, we're going to hear the message, and then we're going to leave this place, and nothing ever changes. About us, about this place, about our city, because we never let him peel away to the deeper places that need the healing. Some of you will often sit in the same seats, talk to the same people, and literally nothing changes except the clothes you wear. Let's not do that. Let's not be a church like that. Let's lay there flat and let him peel the layers away. Oh, yeah, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. But the pleasure is as it's going away, the one that he wants you to be will, will emerge. The one that will be like his son. Don't you want that? I do. And, and that's what he's doing. He's peeling us away. And maybe you're not there. You're not ready. That's okay. He's not going away. He's ready to peel away whenever you're ready. Keep coming, keep praying, and then one day we'll pray with you that you'll just lay flat and let him do it. If you want to do that, there are dozens and dozens of people who want to help you do that, who will walk with you as God peels away like an onion to get at the heart that needs to change. Because if we are willing to let that happen to us and enough of us go through that change, then our church is going to change. It won't ever be the same. And glory be that it's not. And if enough churches in our community do this, then our city will never be the same. Glory be to God. And if enough cities do this, then our nation will change. And if enough nations do this, 
then our world will change. But it begins here with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, I pray that you open our hearts. You allow us to lay there flat. Give us the strength, the determination of these four guys that knew that the only way that their friend was going to heal is that they had to risk everything. To climb up on a roof and peel away all the dirt and all the grass and all the wood to lower him to Jesus. Help us lower one another to Jesus and let him do his work in our hearts beginning today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.